0: Ripple is a payment protocol developed and maintained by Ripple Labs. Greg Kidd was the chief risk officer for Ripple Labs and is now an advisor to the company. Greg, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. What is Ripple?
1: So, Ripple is what we would call a settlement protocol, which means you can move value between any two accounts on a distributed ledger. And like Bitcoin, which is also a distributed ledger. The difference with Ripple is that you can put any store of value. So it has its own cryptocurrency, which is XRP, but you can also put, for instance, fiat currency, dollars, euros, yen, or even something like gold. But anything can be on the ledger and can be moved from one party to another.
0: Chris Larson, the CEO of Ripple Labs, describes Ripple as three things a math based currency a distributed payments protocol, and a distributed currency exchange. And I'd like to to go through each of those. First off, what is a math-based currency?
1: So a math-based currency is generally referred to as a a currency that's based on a, a cryptocurrency security layer, and also that is mathematically capped such that there is a mathematical formula for how much of that currency is. So in a former life, I worked for the payments group at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. And the amount of money out there was the amount of money we said there was, right, that we, we could create money on the fly. But with a, with a math-based currency, there's a mathematical formula that states almost like a proof how much money there can be.
0: Right. So that's OK, great. So you articulate the difference between a math-based currency and uh, a fiat-based currency, if that's correct. Correct. So what is a distributed payments protocol?
1: So distributed payments protocol is really a distributed database that handles a ledger of positions or balances. So instead of having a single database run by a single operator that people log into, there are multiple copies and they're all kept synchronized in the case of uh, Ripple through a process called consensus to make sure that all those ledgers are harmonized. But these ledgers are a very special kind of database because they hold value. Basically, a number that says how much of X or Y or Z a particular account holds. And that ledger is held by many, many parties as opposed to a single party. That's what makes it a distributed ledger.
0: Great. And so we'll get into the third aspect of the distributed currency exchange a bit later. But first, I want to get deeper into the idea of a distributed payments protocol. There are two problems that are at the center of distributed payments There is the double spending problem and the Byzantine generals problem. Could you first explain the double spending problem?
1: Well, both of these are somewhat related, but the double spending problem is the issue of knowing that if you're moving money from party A to party B, that party A is not at the same time pledging to send that money to party C. So if you had a centralized database... That would be easy to solve, because you would do one thing and then the other. And so if A had already sent it to B, there would be no way to send it to C. But in a distributed world, and this is where the general's problem comes in, how do you know if one copy is showing that A is sending to B, that another copy doesn't say that A is sending to C, so that there's no coordination, and there could be essentially a discrepancy between all the ledgers? And so... That generals problem was a reference to a a historical problem where many generals, back before there were cell phones, had to coordinate an attack, and they had to know how to all attack at the same time, because that was the only way to defeat the enemy. So there's a a general question when you have distributed logic, how do you coordinate so that you don't get uneven or conflicting results?
0: And so as I understand, both of these problems, the Byzantine generals problem and the double spending problem, they're both kind of simplifications of what are actually larger, much larger sets of problems, but they're sort of like these th- uh, like the base case of, of two different types of problems that uh, a distributed payments protocol has to deal with, and then when you combine those two problems in the same system, it's kind of this combinatorial explosion of, of all kinds of issues that you have to deal with. Would you say that's accurate?
1: I would say that's accurate. And so the solution, which Satoshi for Bitcoin solved in in one way with with proof of work, Ripple is solving in a, a different manner, but is solving the same problem with something called consensus to basically resolve this issue of coordination, which if you are properly coordinated, even if you're distributed, you can avoid the double spend problem.
0: Is proof of work a subset of the consensus family of solutions?
1: No, I, I wouldn't say it's a subset. I would just say there are two different ways. Proof of work is, is a more mathematically exhaustive process that requires no trust. Consensus is a, what I'd call a heuristical approach, which basically can come to a, a level of consensus, as we say, that if you trust other people and you believe what they're saying, you don't have to have 100% assurance before you can move forward. So as long as you trust other people you can basically stamp a ledger as correct and, and move forward. It's one of the reasons why the Ripple Consensus ledger can reach consensus in sort of two to three to five seconds. But to get final um, certitude for the blockchain takes about seven or eight minutes under current, uh, current circumstances.
0: Right, so let's get into that a little more. Payment systems such as Bitcoin suffer from the high latency caused by... Nodes in the network needing to synchronously communicate. Could you explain the synchronous nature of Bitcoin?
1: I don't think I'm the, the best person but what I, I, from, a, from a purely technical point of view. But what Bitcoin must do, it must propagate the state of the, of the ledger or the blockchain so that everybody agrees. So that there cannot be the double spend. And given the number of nodes there are in Bitcoin, to get that communicated... It, it's a bushy problem, and so to get that fully, fully at a point of certitude, takes minutes rather than seconds.
0: And how does Ripple process uh, uh, transactions in in the in the asynchronous way? Like, how is the? Could you? Could you? I guess could you contrast the the proof of work with the uh, Ripple's form of consensus a little more?
1: So, with Ripple's form of consensus, think of it like um, polling on a voting night you don't need to get every vote counted before you know who's won the election. Once you get a certain percentage, or if you know there's certain populations that historically are predictive of how the market's gonna go, and you set a a a trust level, at at Ripple, it's once of key validators, key parties that you believe and trust have reached 80% of agreement over which transactions are processed are real. That's enough to stamp the ledger as complete, and to move on to the next ledger. And so any transactions that are in that round, and these rounds close every sort of three to five seconds, can get stamped. If it doesn't have the 80%, it can wait until more validators have looked at it and examined it, and usually it will get stamped in the next, the next round. But again, we're still talking seconds rather than minutes.
0: So what you're saying is Ripple utilizes sub networks within the larger network. Uh, in order to leverage some degree of trust. Could you explain this in more detail?
1: That's right. So those are the validators, whereas in Bitcoin, there are the miners. Um, in Ripple's system of, of validators, these trusted validators, which any party can trust, like I don't have to trust the same validators that you trust, but there simply needs to be a, a voting system of trusted parties that run servers that look at submitted transactions and look to see those look like they've come from good sources in fact if one of those validators has gone rogue the other good validators can say I, i'm not going to listen to transactions coming in from those anymore because they've been hijacked so ripple like bitcoin could be vulnerable to like a conspiracy or collusion but in this case of ripple instead of sort of a 50 percent attack you're sort of talking about an 80 percent attack you'd have to find you know of the validators would all have to be colluding, but they'd really be colluding against themselves, because that would destroy trust in the very network that they're validating for. So every
0: distributed payment network faces the problems of correctness, agreement, and utility. I'd like to go through each of these, starting with correctness. And correctness refers to the ability for a distributed system to discern the difference between correct and fraudulent transactions. In traditional financial settings, this is done through trust between institutions and, and cryptographic signatures that guarantee a transaction is coming from the institution that it claims to be coming from. So what is different between a decentralized distributed system uh, such as Ripple and the centralized institution in, in terms of correctness?
1: So in a, in a centralized institution or a centralized operated network. Think of like Swift or the Fed's ACH system. The nodes that are able to submit submit transactions are all known. They've been assigned. They've been allowed. They have to log in. Basically, unless they've been taken over, basically hijacked, those nodes are all known. They have to ask permission to become a node. In a system like Ripple, there's no control. Anyone can be a node. Anyone can send in transactions. But the validators don't necessarily have to trust those transactions. The validators can make their own decision and look at other validators and see whether they trust those transactions. So that's the real difference between a centralized system that determines who can be, who can even participate in the first place. Generally in those centralized systems, anybody who's allowed to participate is by definition trusted. In a distributed system, anyone can participate but that does not mean that they're trusted. So trust is built up based on experience, based on whatever patterns or rules those validators have.
0: Agreement refers to the problem of maintaining a single global truth in the face of a decentralized accounting system. How does agreement differ from correctness?
1: So agreement is probabilistic in this sense in that Agreement doesn't necessarily mean that we've had to wait for agreement between every single party on the network. So agreement in this case is between the validators and it's based on a level which is an 80% threshold currently. And once that 80% threshold is reached, that's considered agreement. Other nodes or other clients are looking to those validators to see whether that agreement has been reached. They're not participating in the decision making. They are the beneficiaries of the decision-making because they're being told that when their transaction has been submitted, their client piece of software will show an updated balance when that 80% threshold has been reached amongst the validators.
0: And then utility is a definition of the usefulness of a distributed payment system. And this is sometimes simplified as the latency of the system. Are there any other benchmarks for the utility of a distributed payment system other than uh, latency?
1: I think in in the case that we're talking about, when we're talking really about settlement, um, latency is by far the most important and, and central concept because without... If you don't have a system that's real-time, it's just a radically different system because you have this thing we call leg risk. So if you can eliminate leg risk, i.e. the notion of basically the double spend issue or the delay, you can't wait seven or eight minutes when you're standing in front of a visa terminal to like clear a transaction. Utility really comes down to whether you can basically transact and operate your life without having to wait for the systems to catch up. So I, I do think latency is the primary focus here.
0: Could you could you explain just a, I know you've already explained some of it, but a little more about the trade offs between Ripple and a proof of work based system like Bitcoin? Just because I'm I know there's a lot of confusion in this area, and I just really want to put a finer point on it.
1: <laughs> well, again, and my understanding is with proof of work, like everybody that's a node needs to know the state of the world, so there has to be essentially a propagation of the information throughout the greater Bitcoin network. It's why there's been concern with scaling Bitcoin, because it's it's a very bushy problem. And so the computational power keeps increasing. It's a very expensive system to run, i.e. the amount of electricity that the miners are having to use to basically certify these transactions, as well as create the new Bitcoins, is quite, quite costly. One of the things that Ripple said was, well, we can avoid a lot of costs, we can introduce a little bit of risk, it's a different kind of risk, to basically rely on a voting and trust system, but that'll reduce the cost of actually operating miners that certify the transactions, and it will speed things up tremendously. So we will compromise a little bit on the theoretical purity in exchange for having a much lower cost and a much faster outcome.
0: Okay, and so the third aspect of what Chris Larson defined Ripple as was the distributed currency exchange. Could you talk more about that?
1: I can. It's one thing to say in the ledger that there can be many different currencies and forms of value. But then the question becomes, how do you move from one form of value to the other? Now, with Bitcoin exchanges, if you want to move from you know yen through Bitcoin into dollars, you're basically moving into the Bitcoin ledger and out. You basically, because the Bitcoin ledger doesn't hold fiat currency. But in Ripple, all balances can be held and reflected on the ledger. What Ripple then includes in the protocol is the ability for this entity called market makers. And anybody can be a market maker. A market maker does nothing else other than quote and say, I will take this many XRP in exchange for this much Bitcoin, or I will take this much dollars in exchange for this much yen. It's simply a quote between two stores of value. All those quotes get put into a book in the Ripple ledger. And so anytime somebody wants to move money from one form to another, from one account to another, and it's switching from one form to another, it can look at the book. And that book is all the quotes of people that have value already on the ledger and are willing to accept more of this from one source and give up more of this to another party on the other side. And that makes the movement of money possible, not just within the same currency as happens on Bitcoin, but between any two forms of value. And something called pathfinding, which is also part of the protocol, means that even if there's not a quote that goes, say, for directly from Korean won to Mexican peso, even if there's no such quote for that on the book, if there's a quote from Korean won into XRP, the ripple currency, and then another quote from XRP, into the Mexican peso, Ripple can find a path that bridges through and finds the cheapest path. So just like SMTP and email finds a path from one email server to another, even though those servers are run on totally different like corporations or networks, as long as there is a protocol that allows it to route through, that's what Ripple achieves, except instead of routing emails, it's routing value, including changes of value from one form to another. And all of that happens in protocol.
0: Right. And so this is a super important point. And I want to, uh, I want to stress a little more. So maybe we could go through an example um, of somebody in uh, maybe uh, a country where, you know, he needs to, uh, let's say he's got some, uh, a person in in some remote country. I'm sure you have an example where uh, somebody needs to buy uh, something that can only be purchased in a currency which this person does not already have.
1: Right. So, I mean, this this is a lot to do with what Shift is doing right now. I mean, a very simple example that we were doing before is someone may have been shopping in Japan and they're about to pay in yen, but all they have in their account is, say, maybe Bitcoin, XRP, and maybe some US dollars. And when they swipe a card, what Shift is doing is it's using the Ripple protocol and saying, okay, well, we need to pay in yen over here. This person has dollars, XRP, and Bitcoin here. And they're chosen to play, say, with XRP. So we look at the marketplace, basically send an API call to the Ripple protocol, and it'll tell us, well, it will take this much XRP to buy, enough yen to complete the purchase in Japan. And so right then and there, as long as there's someone who's willing to essentially buy that XRP and sell yen, either directly or indirectly, the protocol can basically make the call that there's an open path and that transaction can happen virtually in real time. And so the party that's getting paid in yen doesn't even need to know what the party is paying with is paying with Because they're just going to receive yen. Someone in between is willing to accept more XRP in exchange for giving up the yen. And they're going to do it at the best price because all the offers are all set against one another. So the great news for the person who's doing this is they don't have to hunt around for the best price. They'll always get best execution because that's what the protocol does. It always looks for what the best price is of all the book quotes and gives that to the user that's sending the money.
0: This micro example that you just gave is, is super important. And so now I want to zoom out real quick. And what is the, what is the macro implication? If you apply this type of transac- improvement in transaction efficiency to the entire world or whatever, whatever image you see uh, in the conceivable future, how does that improve overall economic efficiency?
1: So the big picture is today people that are moving money around – Between parties, especially between countries and currencies, to basically make that happen timely, they need to post liquidity in those other places to have money so that people can get paid. Or else they have to rely on the correspondent banking system, where you're relying on a bank to do that for you. And if you've ever done like international wire transfers or anything to do with correspondent banks, you realize that's like a four-party process. You know, your bank has to talk to the correspondent bank in your country, which talks to the, their counterpart in the country that you're sending it to, which talks to the final bank where funds are going to become available. And that process takes usually two to three days, often costs 25 or $35 to do, um, has a lot of leg risk. So if the transaction gets stopped or blocked or lost anywhere along the way, you can feel like your money's lost. And so there's a layer of friction in global commerce it comes to the fact that there's not currently an end-to-end way to send small or large amounts of money without a lot of risk a lot of time and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of uh, quite quite a, ver- a very high margin for the the parties that are in between but quite a bad deal for the sender or receiver and so with this methodology of ripple all that is taken out because the concept of market makers is inserted market makers are already willing to give up something in one place in exchange for receiving something in another place and so as long as you have that happening that means money can move in in the blink of an eye because as long as there's market makers between senders and receivers the money is already there at the other side it's just a question of making the final little hop between the market maker that already has money in the local place where you want it to the party that's basically waiting to receive it, as long as they feel confident that they got something on the other side and ripple allows that ripple allows you to see that the money came in on one side and so you can release it on the other and do that in three to five seconds
0: and these high margin transaction points that exist along the current system these conventional banks how are they Adapting to Ripple, uh, I mean, I've or, or adapting to the to the cryptocurrency space in general. Like I know, you know, initially they were they were pretty resistant to it, but I my impression is that there's actually probably a lot more adoption than the public uh, is really aware of within the conventional banking world. Is that correct?
1: Well, the, Ripple's main focus these days is is focusing actually on those banks and other financial institutions that are exploring ways to be leaders in this realm as opposed to laggards or followers. So a large number of banks, and not just small banks, but some of the biggest banks in the world, are trialing and piloting this right now to get familiar with how to integrate this into their core operations. So that's happening. In fact, that's become Ripple's main focus, is to get those banks and major financial institutions to basically be leaders in this area by by working with, in this case, the Ripple protocol to, to make that to make that happen
0: what are the biggest uh difficulties in in communicating with uh those banks i mean you think of a bank as kind of this stodgy old old world institution but i know that's not entirely true but it's also not entirely false so just in terms of communication uh what are some what are some keys to bridging the gap between like old world finance and this new cryptocurrency world uh-huh.
1: Well, the the biggest hurdle is that unless you're a small bank, some small banks use some package software, every major bank has its own stack, its own technology stack, its own core banking system. And those banks have historically not been API friendly. So there's no standard API for dealing with any major banks in the world. A particular bank might develop some hooks so that you can interact with their bank. But that would mean that any system that you're going to build that's going to move money from bank A to bank B, every interconnection is custom, right? So it would be like trying to connect each email server in the world before there was SMTP or connect phone companies before there was an SMS standard. So until there's a messaging and communication system between banks' internal core systems and this external, if you will, exchange or ledger capability, There's not a consistent way for one bank to talk to another. And so the the real challenge is to to make something like these new technologies really work. Mainstream is you have to build that layer that allows the existing core banking systems to connect to this new capability. You're not going to replace the existing core systems. Those are going to be there, but you have to figure out how to connect them. And, And that's the phase we're in right now, is figuring out how to connect the core banking systems together, but using this new technology, as opposed to using the technology to replace the core banking systems of banks. That's that's not going to happen.
0: To interleave a little more of the technical information with this uh, higher level practical information, could you describe the term transaction lifecycle and the term last closed ledger?
1: So a... Let's start with the last closed ledger first. sure. so the the last closed ledger refers to the concept that there is a cycling which is based on a maximum amount of time or a certain threshold number of activity or transactions before the the validating uh, the validators on the ripple consensus ledger reach agreement as to whether the eighty percent threshold has been reached for a particular group of transactions. So as you can imagine, if a transaction arrives right at the last second before a ledger is going to close, it might have only arrived at one validator, and the others may not have seen it. So a decision on that transaction is going to be deferred to the next close because the closing is going to happen. It's not going to wait for transactions. It's going to happen. And anything that didn't get figured out in that round is going to be deferred to the next round. So that's, that's just the last close. So if you go to... <clears throat> Ripplecharts.com, you'll see how many ledgers there have been, and you'll see after every sort of three to five seconds that another ledger has closed, a certain number of additional transactions have been processed and value has been. So, remind me again of your your first question that's that's the next last closed ledger.
0: So, last closed ledger, perfect. So, uh, transaction lifecycle?
1: So, transaction lifecycle if if a transaction is submitted and it is actually reached the 80% threshold within a particular ledger closing cycle, the, the whole cycle of that transaction will have happened within a single ledger. If it's submitted in one and comes in too late for the other validators to sign off on it, it's going to stretch and, and be spread over two ledgers or even more ledgers if necessary before it gets processed. So uh, that, that's really all I'm thinking of in terms of a, a transaction lifecycle is it's just a Again, it's an instruction to move funds from one account to another, and it's either stamped as, um, as as being like approved in a particular ledger cycle, or it's deferred to the next when it's either stamped as successful or ultimately rejected.
0: In order to articulate how resilient the network is, I'd like you to, dis- to describe, if you can, a worst-case scenario of bad actors who are conspiring to ruin Ripple's transactional integrity, and explain how Ripple could withstand that.
1: So one thing that both Ripple and Bitcoin have is, is there's a transaction cost for everything that happens. In the case of Ripple, this transaction cost is not collected by Ripple or any other operator. It's actually destroyed. So, it makes the currency slightly deflationary. It's a very small charge. But if you were a spammer and you wanted to flood the network with minor or insignificant transactions or simply round trip, I send a penny to you, you send a penny back to me, and we just set up a robot that did that odd infinitum. Having this cost creates an anti spam mechanism. It would be like what the world of email would be like if there was a small cost to every email. It might only cost us a dollar a year, but it would stop spammers. But that does not exist in the email world, and so we have to deal with the problem of spam and email. If there's spam on a ledger, it could result in the whole network being knocked down because if you flood it with a bunch of irrelevant transactions, it would be hard for the network to know which transactions are important, worth processing versus which are worth deferring. So in addition to having this charge, Ripple has a second mechanism, which is the ability when the network is under pressure for that charge to go up, to make it even more expensive for an attacker because for them to flood the network will then essentially financially exhaust them to do so. So that's the main built-in mechanism. One of the main reasons for having XRP, a cryptocurrency built in because you cannot have an active account or do anything without having and using XRP.
0: Okay. So, um, this is a topic you, you don't have to discuss if you don't want to for any reason, it's so totally fine. Um, and I'll edit this out again. Um, what are some. So, so Stellar is a fork of Ripple, and Stellar's currency is inflationary, whereas Ripple's currency is deflationary. What properties about the two currencies. Um, like, what is what is the, a deflationary currency versus an inflationary currency? This seems like a core uh, difference in projecting how the economy would adopt uh, this type of currency. What do you think are the macro implications for having an inherently deflationary currency versus inherently inflationary currency?
1: In a macro term, in, in terms of absolute value, it doesn't really matter. It, it would mean that if you have an inflationary currency, at some point in the, time, in the future, there's going to be more of it. But people say, you know, Bitcoin is deflationary, Ripple is deflationary, but you can infinitely divide currency so in other countries for instance that have inflation like at times in the history of italy they just basically lop off some zeros on the currency well in a deflationary currency you can do the same thing in reverse you can just move the decimal place over so the absolute value of the currency and whether it's deflationary or inflationary it doesn't really matter i know a lot of people have a lot of emotion about this but but i come from the fed and you know at the end of the day the real issue is does an entity that's in charge of the currency have the ability to really manipulate the supply? And whether you have an inflationary or a deflationary, as long as it's a cryptocurrency and it's mathematically determined, it, it doesn't really matter because there's not a primary party that's manipulating the currency. The big difference when it's the Fed or you know it's the Greek government, you know, the question is: can you manipulate the currency? The Greeks wish. They could, but because they're part of like the euro system, they have limits to what they can do if they go off the euro, then they can manipulate their currency, and that'll have you know whatever consequences it does have. but truth be known, if you're a cryptocurrency, whether you're inflationary or deflationary, everybody long as everyone knows what the the story is, it shouldn't really matter or differ
0: yeah the the knee jerk reaction uh, that I've heard to the deflationary idea is that. If a currency is deflationary, that means, you know, the value of it goes up over time. So people are incentivized to not spend it, which is not really, I mean, it doesn't really work. It equilibrates because if something is, if nobody's spending it, then the value of it will go down. So it has inflationary pressure. So there's an equilibrium. At least uh, that's my understanding.
1: Well, so there's two things. If you're a speculator, you're basically holding something because you think it's going to be worth more in the future, whether it's gold or housing or whatnot. That's really the investment value of an asset class. If what you're doing is you have a certain amount of this and you're really just using it for liquidity to get things done, then the fact that, yes, had you held it, it would be worth more in the future would basically discourage you from spending it. But if what you're spending is such a trivial amount relative to your overall net worth, then you know, you stop worrying about it. So for instance, I do have a large position in cryptocurrencies, both in XRP and in Bitcoin. And, and I actually have, have some, a position in Stellar as well. But I don't have any problem with using my debit card and spending any of those currencies when I'm buying a spicy dog at the 7-Eleven because it just doesn't matter that much. If I really want to take a long position in the currency, that's like a treasury decision on my part. The idea that I want to be able to spend things because I'm hungry and I want some lunch, that's like an immediate liquidity decision. And you can use these currencies for both. They're not mutually exclusive.
0: What is Ripple Labs?
1: So Ripple Labs is the is the corporate entity that has built the Ripple protocol and open sourced it. It it also works now on building, you think like in terms of Red Hat, they build. Layers of software that allow enterprises, banks, to basically get up to speed and use the software without having to start from scratch. So you can think of Ripple Labs as kind of like a Bell Labs. It's a R&D shop that both promotes and produces the original protocol and furthers it, but also now builds additional products and services on top of that protocol that allows mainstream institutions to to leverage it and make use of.
0: So as you said, it's the red hat to Ripple's uh, Linux, or as you paraphrased. And so you know, an, ad- an added side effect of this uh, that I really appreciate is there's this added marketing power. And I don't say marketing power in, in a bad way. I-, I saw this manifest as an end user in that Ripple Labs has really well-produced YouTube videos. And this this sounds like maybe it, is- it isn't a big deal, but it's actually a really big deal because you know, YouTube explanations and really good diagrams are really important for network effects. Like, certainly more important than—I mean, okay, arguably more important than Wikipedia articles. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can have a really good Wikipedia article about Bitcoin, but the the network effects of a really good YouTube video are arguably going to be stronger. So, So even if you're like— you know, a critic of Ripple Labs in the sense that you say, oh, you know, this is like this centralization element on this, uh, you know, this decentralized paradise that we would otherwise have. You know, you've got some really good materials for understanding, uh, you know, what Ripple actually does. And so, you know, this, this brings to mind, like, what are some other advantages to having this subtle element of centralization to, to the Ripple project?
1: Well, you you get this tension. There, there is centralization because, I mean, Ripple Labs is, is obviously sitting there. Uh, and so they also have a, a big chunk of the XRP. They've raised a lot of capital. So they can basically invest in R&D in a coordinated and strategic fashion. Yet at the same time, they don't control everything. One of the companies I'm invested in is called GateHub. They're some of the guys that helped build um, Bitstamp, the original uh, European uh, Bitcoin exchange. But also they're a Bitstamp is a gateway on Ripple. And folks like that can jump in and work in a distributed fashion, and they can do things independently, but they can also work with Ripple Labs and say, hey, you know, which direction are you guys going? We know you can't do everything and aren't going to do everything, but if we know you're going in this direction, we'll go and build on top of that and accelerate that. So, you know, in, 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 I come from the, the the Twitter world, and so Twitter definitely does some stuff, itself, but it is also heavily reliant on the ecosystem around Twitter. And it's a tension between having some centralized control and also basically cultivating a developer network. Um, and, And also being able to create certainty so that not just the developer network, but enterprises that are out there, again, banks and other financial institutions know that there's someone at the end of the day that's got the light switch on that you can talk to if you have a problem, if you're taking the risk of Integrating a major financial institution into a new technology that just creates a level of comfort and assurance that this whole thing isn't just basically a flash in the pan.
0: Though, let's live out the nightmares of the worst crypto anarchists and say, you know, tomorrow, Ripple Labs, I don't know, it gets buried in an earthquake. Uh, The most important stakeholders all die. Uh, What happens to Ripple?
1: Well, the Ripple protocol lives on because it's out there. I mean, Ripple Labs could go away. The founders could go away. But that ledger is out there. So unless you basically nuke every single, <laughs> every single uh, version of that ledger, that will just keep running. And as long as you don't lose the position of the ledger, Ripple as a protocol lives on. Similar to Bitcoin, right? There's, there's no way you can kill the beast because there's no head to, to kill the protocol will live on.
0: So you've spent some time close to government. How is government responding to the rise of cryptocurrencies and the Cambrian explosion of new types of currencies?
1: Well, governments aren't a, aren't a, a unilateral force. So you know, there's different parts of the U.S. government and other governments. Some think that these new innovations are a, a currency. Others think they're like a security. Um, some think they're a commodity, and when they issue conflicting proclamations, when you know Texas thinks it's one thing and California thinks it's another, and New York goes its own way, it's just the uncertainty. These innovations could live with almost any definition. The thing that really retards progress is when you have to deal with conflicting interpretations and you're building software. So if you tell a software engineer, well, it can be this, or this, it's one thing, but if it can be both at the same time, and one will get you into trouble 50% of the time, and the other will get you into trouble 50% of the time, and you don't know which is which, you're going to be in trouble. And so that lack of uncertainty, that lack of certainty about how it's regulated is much worse than the fact that it is regulated. In other words, I'm of the camp that would welcome strong regulation, but it has to be clear and consistent regulation clear and consistent between the states and the federal government, hopefully clear between different nation states so you don't create these anomalies and these, these pockets of, of, of opposite uh, realities. Uh, and, and definitely like clear between the states. Uh, all those things would do more to accelerate the adoption and growth than, than anything else that I see that's a blocker for, for cryptocurrency.
0: What is the most interesting aspect of the cryptocurrency world that we have not discussed yet?
1: The most interesting one to me is is how do you bring identity in so that there's a balance between security, privacy, and trust, so that cryptocurrencies don't just look like a way of doing an end run around the controls in place to prevent money laundering, terrorist financing, and other um, corrupt or abusive practices? Through a shadow banking or shadow payments and settlement system. So, what is the way that you can basically do for do for the industry what Airbnb and Uber did? Basically, let people connect more directly with less friction in between, and yet do so in a way that is compliant and isn't like a backdoor of money laundering.
0: I don't know if you saw this, but uh, I saw yesterday that Facebook got a patent approved for a credit system based on social network connections. Um, do you see any overlap between that type of uh, you know, social network-based credit and the, the world of cryptocurrencies?
1: I absolutely do. I mean, It started back when I was at Square and we found out that using a credit record was a poor indication of whether someone was going to be a good Square merchant. You just needed to start looking at other forms of basically reputational capital, and social, social cues are a huge one, basically looking and seeing how long people have had accounts on social networks, what the depth and strength of those social networks are. Uh, also looking at information about phone uses and mobile phone usage in particular is really good without having to like, go and review everybody's like, you know, records and who they're talking to. You can simply see whether someone who's a user has had an account for a long period of time. And and that in itself gives you an idea that you're probably dealing with a real person rather than somebody who's maybe doing a a VoIP um, fraud and isn't really signing up with a real mobile phone and is looking to basically have just a temporary account and is going to use it to churn and burn and, and, and do some bad things. So between the social cues and the increasing power of mobile, you can get risk rates and compliance much better tuned than you could five years ago, uh, and I don't see that trend stopping.
0: Yeah, and you know, to to put a finer point on that, like uh, I know this isn't you know totally uh, relevant to Ripple, but in in terms of the discussion of the credit uh, allocated based on social con- connections. You know, I was talking to somebody about it yesterday, and he was like, oh, you know, this is just going to make payments more dis- more discriminatory. Loans are going to be more discriminatory. And what I was trying to explain to him was like, there's tons of capital in the world that is unallocated or under-allocated. And when you create a new vessel to ascribe trust to somebody, to ascribe a loan to somebody, this is just going to improve the flow of capital from one place to another. It's not like it's going to You know, the net effect is not going to be some inhibitory bottleneck.
1: I agree. I mean, I don't believe that investors are like looking to discriminate as a way of like making money. If you go back to the civil rights movement, it wasn't the bus companies that wanted segregation between blacks and whites on the bus. It made their buses less efficient. They were under pressure from other groups. The actual businesses that are looking to allocate capital, they they just basically want good information to do algorithmic lending. They want things to be, if you will, colorblind, so they can basically make a decision on the merits, because if you're going to do something that's discriminatory, it often takes more work to be discriminatory than not discriminatory.
0: That's great. Well, Greg Kidd, thanks so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It has been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, is there anything else you'd like to share about Ripple or uh, any of the other companies that you're involved with?
1: All I'll say is it's very, very early on. This is not like the middle. We're not in the late innings or the middle innings. This is really just the first or second inning, and I think it's going to be really interesting next five years.